Today I welcome Elizabeth English, Head of School at the Archer School for Girls in America. In this episode, I discuss inspiring female role models, managing conflict, finding courage, and reflect on why single-sex education is one of the USA's fastest-growing educational trends. Many independent schools here in the UK began as single-sex, but transitioned to co-ed during the last century. And we've seen a lot more, particularly in the last year, announced plans to follow very traditional schools. Yet in America, single-sex education is now one of the fastest-growing trends in the educational landscape. Why do you think this is? I thought you were going to ask me, as our understanding of gender expression is broadening, why are they still relevant? You can answer that question from the educator's perspective, and you can answer it from a parent perspective. I'll start with what I hear parents saying. For parents of a daughter, and I have two daughters, especially in cities like LA and New York, which are, you know, you drive down Sunset Boulevard, media is so hypersexualized. I think for parents, they're like, if I could just give my daughter a respite from the bias and the bombardment of images and messages about what makes her valuable, you know, namely her body and her sexuality. If I could give her respite from that, she has a chance at really becoming someone and figuring out what her real worth is. That's what parents are, are looking at. And then they're looking at, you know, some of the world's most famous women are graduates of girls' schools. And so they may not know why there's that correlation between there being a disproportionate percentage of female leaders in the world having gone to girls' schools or women's colleges. And I'm talking about Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice and Golda Meir. I mean, you just, you know, I'm sure... I'm sure in the UK and, and Australia and New Zealand, because those are places to my mind with a very strong tradition of girls' schools, you can run the list. From an educator's perspective, I think it has a lot to do with what a woman in the US, a researcher named Dr. Bernice Sandler talked about, which is this concept of the chilly climate for girls in co-ed schooling. And she actually was the woman who helped author what we refer to as Title IX in this country, the legislation that basically said young women in K-12 schools and in publicly funded colleges and universities must have equal access to educational resources. So in sports teams and in programs in, in the academic. What she saw was that in co-ed settings, we call on men more, we give them more praise for what they say, we interrupt them less. And over a whole lifetime of co-ed schooling, that has a cumulative impact on a girl's confidence. You know, confidence governs what we choose to do in life. So I like to make the analogy to historically Black colleges and universities, which also enjoy a disproportionate percentage of high-level leaders in the U.S., certainly. And it's, it's that you get respite from the bias you encounter every day that's really subtle. And the good thing about being in a girls' school is you, don't, you learn not to internalize that bias. You recognize it and you say, oh, I know what that is. And then you move on. You don't think there's something wrong with you. You don't think, oh, I was interrupted because what I had to say was inane or unimportant. You realize it's like, this is what people do to women. I think that that's from an educational standpoint, that's why our school exists. We're a feminist institution. We believe in the power of women and we believe in their right to fully realize their potential. Whether it's an all boys or an all girls, why do you think single sex education can still be relevant? Yeah, I mean, for the very reason I said, I think, unfortunately, our kids are fed a diet of, as I said, hypersexualized 
media content and it's toxic for girls, but it's also toxic for boys. I think that people want to counteract that. They don't want their boys to grow up with a concept of sort of toxic masculinity. Like there's only one way to be a boy and that's to be a brute, you know, subdue women and conquer them. And they want their boys to grow up with a full range of emotional capacity and to not be ashamed to be emotional and have needs. And likewise, they want their girls to grow up and get in touch with their strength and their agency. So I think parents are pretty, pretty aware that they're up against a lot in raising their kids these days. And I think single sex education is, a, is an option that they believe, you know, again, offers that respite and also helps their kids become fully human. Yeah, and I think during the teenage years, it's, it's an enormously difficult emotional, physiological change that they go through. And, you know, you talk about this respite um, from all the challenges of the world. You know, we're talking digital, we're talking social media, we're talking access to imagery and content that, you know, I, I certainly didn't have any access to, you know, that I wasn't even aware of. And their tolerance levels and their expectations within peer groups have shifted too. I've got two daughters as well, balanced with two boys. So I've got a, a real kind of great co-ed family, but I see this and I see the differences with all my children, different ages, what they have access to, but also their vulnerability. I certainly see the value of single sex in that regard. I had a head teachers on from a co-ed school and, and their kind of picture was really around, this is what the world is, right? The world's co-ed, so why segregate right now? Get used to it, throw them all in together. They're still going to have access to all of these, the media and everything else. What would you say to them that said, look, let's just go out co-ed because that's what the world expects? Because I think that both boys and girls need to be inoculated before they can be fully successful navigating <laughs> that world. And again, I, I would just say that I think, you know, we see it. Girls who graduate from girls schools have been in an environment where they've been able to fully find their voice and really their confidence. And to be very conscious of the bias that we don't want them to internalize it. So I think they're better prepared to function in a co-ed environment for, by virtue of having gone to, to either an all-girls or an all-boys school. I mean, I think some of the, the boys' schools, the younger ones that are emerging, are really exciting places. And if I had a donor who gave me enough money to start a boys' school, I would do it instantly. Because it's one of the things I hear most frequently from our parents here at Archer is I wish there was an archer school for boys. I wish there was a school that attended to the needs of my son as intentionally as, as archer does for my daughter. And I'm really worried about my son. You know, there's a boys school here in LA, Loyola school, and it's a Catholic school. But, you know, I was so moved. I visited a couple of years ago. I spent the day there and I just watching boys just wrestle around on the ground at break. Like they wouldn't do that. They're, they're like puppies. I mean, I don't mean to be, they were allowed to be boys and it was so beautiful. And, and also just code of respect and the culture of service that was in the mission of the school. I was so moved by that place. I would send my son there in a second. And it's educating, you know, we talk about boys education and then we're going to focus a lot on the girl side, but it has to be run in parallel. You know, boys themselves, you know, have their needs, have their troubles, have their emotional strains. And often the spotlight shone on girls and, and women with the problems, whether it's through bullying, through sexualization, through image consciousness. And sometimes we fail to see because boys are just told just to, hey, man up, right? Which is the worst thing you could say to a boy because we, we don't understand them. As parents, we've got to spend more time understanding and supporting our boys in terms of making them feel confident 
that seemed greener for all education. Doesn't matter where you go. And I would add self-aware. That's the other dimension. The huge value of, of at least being at a school like Archer is our whole human development curriculum is, you know, girl serving, girl centric. So we're talking about self-esteem and body image and social aggression. Where does that come from? And, you know, healthy relationship and what an unhealthy relationship looks like and boundaries and trusting your intuition. And we're just able to focus on those issues that really impact girls and women. What what do you think is the biggest misconception about an all-girls education? I hear it all the time. Oh, aren't the girls mean? Honestly, this is the third girls' school I've worked in. I would say there is a beautiful sisterhood that emerges in a girls' school. Yeah, I mean, listen, middle schoolers are miserable everywhere. They are insecure little monsters. And that's part of growing up is that you're so profoundly uncomfortable in this new body. And it's really hard leaving the innocence of childhood and that gross metamorphosis that happens, you know, when that butterfly exits the cocoon, it's not pretty. So (laughs) yeah, are they mean to each other? Yes. They would be in a co-ed school. They would be in really any kind of environment because they're nasty little creatures in middle school. But I think one of the things that we can do is talk to them really openly and forthrightly about A, what they're going through, B, what are healthy ways to cope with uncertainty and feeling left out and why social cruelty emerges. There's always a common denominator and that's insecurity. You know, it's always if there's a kid who's being socially aggressive, it's almost always because they're dealing with something at home or they have some issue within themselves. So We help the girls become conscious of this. You know, it's funny. And we also have a whole peer leadership program because kids, we know they listen to each other much more intently than they listen to adults. So when those sorts of things emerge, we have a whole system to deal with it, including consciousness raising for all of the girls about why, why we have conflict with others. I would argue that when you have no boys in your midst, there's less conflict around that. I just think the girls ultimately are kinder to each other because there is a sisterhood here and there is, you've removed that variable that causes an awful lot of insecurity and tension for girls, which is boys. And then, you know, they're all wearing uniforms and they're, you know, there's sort of like a leveling. There's a real de-emphasis. It doesn't matter where you come from. You're here and it's about who you are and who you, how you treat people and, and what you do. And how much do you think that's to do with your upbringing? Because, you know, if I can roll back the years, you've devoted your career to education, but you were the first in your family to attend college. And you didn't just go to college, you earned degrees at Skidmore College, Tufts University and Harvard. Your mother, on the other side, Lillian, dropped out of school after eighth grade because she needed to work to support your family. Did her experience inspire you to pursue higher education? I was so lucky because I grew up in an area of the country, of the U.S., that had excellent public school. This was the dream of public education, that you would give people an avenue for a better life. It absolutely was part of my story. And I I grew up in a very intellectual um, suburb of Boston where lots of professors lived. So (laughs) even though my family was very... um, working class. And in fact, I think only one of my siblings ended up graduating from high school. I had three siblings. It just changed the trajectory of my life. I mean, reading literature, I mean, like, I remember reading Pride and Prejudice and Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad, just being like, oh my God, there's this incredible body of literature that reflects on the human experience. And I get to think about 
that was mind blowing for me. And I couldn't get enough of it. I just, it was like a way out. It was a way forward. For me, as I look back, it's really a reflection on the power of the culture of the school. You know, because if the dominant culture is one of intellectualism and achievement, it's almost like you don't have a choice. Like, oh, if I don't get on <laughs> get on board with doing homework and looking ahead to college, I'm not going to fit in. And all any kid wants is to fit in. That's it. That's the bottom line. So if the dominant culture is one that's unhealthy and toxic, that's what you're going to do. If it's doing drugs or getting pregnant, that's most likely the impact that it's going to have on you if you could go either way. So I was lucky. I was in a school where the culture was one of achievement and my friend's parents were interesting and writing books. And, you know, it's just so I, I just I, my circumstance was seriously fortunate. And yeah, I didn't be like my mom. My mom didn't have any choice. What do you think was the most important thing you learned from her? Don't get pregnant before you want to. It's an important one. Um, always have your own money. Be independent in the fullest sense of the word. Educationally independent financially independent. Don't rely on somebody else to succeed. You know, I mean, rely on other people because we need other people, but don't ever put yourself in the position where your survival depends on another person. I've always had it for my parents. It's just Simon, back yourself. It is just back yourself. You know, you, you have to, you have to. And, you know, I was in Canada last year and I sang some drinks with some, just some random people we met at the bar at the bottom of the, of the ski slope. We were just talking about life and about independence. And, you know, my wife, she's obviously a mother of four and she's bringing up and supporting my kids. And, you know, she's worried about what she can do. And the best advice I said was just stay in your lane. And, I've, and it's kept and we've written it up. And I just thought that's such a great way to sometimes just stay in your lane. Because sometimes you'll get sucked into your partner's lane or you'll be sucked into your children's lane too often and then you lose your own identity. And so the advice we've given our kids, whatever it is, you know, whatever goals you want, back yourself and stay in your lane. There'll be times that your lanes have to cross, but for whatever reason, there's times that they don't need to merge and they certainly don't need to be consumed by someone else's lane. You know, I think about my mom and I think the way that she found agency was just by being really clear about what her values were and what it was that mattered to her in life. And um, she worked at the Audubon Society, which is like a society for the protection of, of birds in the U.S. And um, she loved birds. So, you know, she did a lot of gardening and knew to, what plants to plant to attract the birds that she liked. And we had bird feeders everywhere. And she did a lot of like uh, needlepoint. Everything she ever did in needlepoint was of a bird. And she loved nature and she loved animals. And she believed very much in just treating everyone humanely. You know, my dad I remember when my mom went to visit my dad when he was stationed in the South during World War II, and that made such a profound impact on her segregation and the way Black people were treated in this country. Like, I swear to God, every single day I heard about how you must never, ever, ever treat anyone as though they're less than you. And that she didn't go to high school. She didn't have a lot of independence economically, but she had independence spiritually. I think she knew what mattered and what was important to her. And so I think that commitment to humanity and then also understanding the value that education played in my life, those are probably the two greatest impacts for my mom that caused me to become an educator. Like if you're educated, you have freedom. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. 
We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I spent some time reading through your Twitter feed at Miss English Tweets and saw a lot of sheroes. I love this. So it's she heroes, sheroes. And it's, I mean, I'm taking that on. There was an Archer student profile by NPR for documenting the pandemic an alumna who had been working on the Perseverance Mars rover for three years. Your congratulations, obviously, to Stacey Abrams for a Nobel Peace Prize nomination. The list goes on. What is one thing that these women have in common? You know, it's almost like what you were just saying, like stay in your lane. They have a singularity of purpose and a capacity to let go or not attach to the forces that will, for whatever reason, whether they're in your own head or coming from outside yourself, telling you that you can't do it or that it doesn't matter or it's not possible. I think that that's a superpower, being able to just singularly focus on something that matters to you and not allow your self-doubt or the doubt of others to throw you off course. And it's hard for women. Like I'm going to tell you, I've done a lot of thinking this year as an educator, as a female leader in a pandemic, people bring their expectations, they bring their gender bias into the workplace. Like even the most conscious people will expect a female leader to like act like their mother. It just is, I accept it. And everybody's more comfortable with daddy being in charge. It's just how we're socialized. But it's like such a tightrope. You can't even look the wrong way as you're walking down the hall or, you know, People will attach meaning to that. Like you maybe you could be lost in thought or upset by something that just happened. And if you aren't present in a sort of nurturing, pleasant, maternal way, there's like an instant penalty. You get that. And people are profoundly uncomfortable with powerful women. It's just we've had study after study tracking how we react to powerful women. And it's like with contempt (laughs) and anger. Like, look at poor Hillary Clinton, you know, just, I mean, hatred. (laughs) So as a powerful woman, you have to have like, you know, a bubble around you, like a super power protector bubble that just, you know, deflects all of that noise that comes toward you because you are excelling and succeeding and daring to be great. I mean, what we see with those three women that I mentioned, you know, they, they are real change makers. And that's a term that the Americans use a lot in education. And I love it. It's what you want. You know, you want any of your kids to go through, be happy and confident, be self-aware, but to do something meaningful. And, you know, there'll be the handful that want to absolutely change. And that's where they are singularly focused. It really resonates with their purpose and their meaning. Otherwise, you know, then you have the majority, I'm going to say the majority who kind of go off and fit within the fabrics of society, you know, that's on a cookie cutter treadmill of, right, I need to earn money, more money, have more things. We have a really, we really consulted the literature on why it is so often women don't persist in the STEM field. They'll enroll in not necessarily med school and all, and then they drop out. And part of the problem is that for women, like we, and I think this is part of how we've been socialized. Maybe there's some like genetic component to it. I don't know. Our girls, they want what they do in the world to have an altruistic purpose. Girls and women, generally speaking, want to make a difference. Whereas boys, I think, are socialized just to get in the game and win it. Get in there at all costs. 
And girls are like, well, I don't know if I'm going to, what's the point in showing up and working in a lab all day long, unless I'm driving towards some higher purpose. When our girls engage in engineering and, and design work, we let them solve a problem that matters to them. And that is what gets them engaged and collaborating and teaming and iterating. They're like, we're going to do something good in the world. So, you know, our girls just won the second MIT Lemelson grant. We're one of only 14 schools in the whole country. And I think it's just because we treat engineering and design as a creative and altruistic endeavor. So we've had a lot of wildfires, as I know other parts of the world have as a result of climate change. And so they're inventing this rooftop device uh, that detects embers and um, triggers a, a water defense system. It's so cool, but you know they'll have a patent at the end of this. Like that's what education should be: letting kids solve a problem, you know, giving them the skills to do it, but then letting them do something with those skills. There's got to be an experiential element, and it's got to matter to them, a relevant. I could talk to you for days on school-based education, problem-solving creativity, because it absolutely is the future. It's what we got to teach our kids. Knowledge is abundant. We have access like we do with oil. Data is just there, but teaching kids to think creatively, you know, to do problem solving, to be able to go off and want to, should bring all those skills together to solve real world problems. Wow. That'd be amazing. And the guest I had on last week, Patrick Ruff from Woodside Priory, up the coast from you, talks exactly the same. So you two get together because wonderful ideas. If all our kids got put together on real world problems, we could solve a huge amount. It's a basic human need to create. I think that people go insane when they're kept from being able to create something that matters to them. And we ask ourselves, why aren't our kids motivated? They're not motivated because you're not giving them an opportunity to do anything with the knowledge you're giving them. It's immensely frustrating. You know, it, it would be like um, training an athlete to do a triathlon and then like strapping them in a chair for a month straight. You know, it's just like they have this incredible energy and readiness. Like the mind of a child is ready to be creative and to solve problems. And I think I'm in California, not by accident. I think I had to leave New England to go to a place that really prizes um, being generative and creative and and, and liberal in your approach to education. I think you have to get like as far away from Europe, mainland Europe, as you possibly can in order to really innovate in education. I mean, that may be a controversial statement, but I mean, even like when my husband talks about the school that he went to, it's like, whoa. <laughs> to be fair, I mean, a lot of the UK independent sector particularly are very forward thinking, but again, they have the resources and they also have a lot more independence outside of governmental education to be able to drive their own curriculum, to offer all those things. And that's why it's so exciting. In the US anyway, New England, you know, it's slow. What do you think is the biggest challenge young women will face in their own careers? You mentioned a couple of things. As what are those biggest challenges? And what do we need to be doing now at school to help them break through those? It's still really hard to balance parenthood with working and having a career. And the bulk of, you know, housework, child care, scheduling still falls primarily on the woman. And we know that. So that's a big challenge. I think child care, at least in the US, it's a massive problem. It's just unaffordable, really difficult to access. And it just makes, you know, being able to excel and thrive in your career really, really hard. 
You know, I think that the good that has come out of more and more women entering the workplace and taking on leadership is that it's required men um, and given them the opportunity to feel more fully present as parents. So that's the good news. But I think it's still hard. It's really hard for women. That's a challenge. I do think gender bias is subtle, it's pernicious, but it's real. And I think just having the fortitude to not let it wear you down is something that we need to overtly teach our girls. The other side of the coin with that is you almost can overthink it. I sit here as that person, white, middle-class, middle-aged man, right? And, you know, I have two daughters and two sons. I speak to a lot of educators. And maybe I speak to too many, I read too much. I often then find myself getting in a bit of a stick because I'm going, am I overthinking this? Am I really like that? Then I'm kind of going, well, the process of me going through the thinking, surely that's a good thing. But almost doubting myself sometimes going, but what's that decision based on a slight bias? I totally agree. I mean, it comes back to what you said, back yourself. It doesn't matter in the end what comes at you. It's what you do about it. And, you know, I think my ability to get as far as I've come, I mean, I did choose to go to a girl's school specifically because I kept getting passed over for less qualified men because they were like, they've been football coaches and that that's just a model that exists. Now I can, you know, that doesn't matter at the end of the day. You know, I'm here to change that for girls, and I don't want them to focus on the fact that they're women at the end of the day. If we remove that, it's it's absolutely the best way forward, but we can't ignore the movement and the spotlight that still needs to be there. So there's still a long way to go until we get that gender equality in jobs and leadership and in everything. It's a delicate balance. I don't want our students to be primarily focused on their identity characteristics. I want them to be primarily focused on the passion inside of them that they need to pursue, how to fulfill it, and to be fully human. I don't want them to be constantly scanning the environment for bias and being fixated on it. I want them to be able to recognize it, put it in its place, and succeed in spite of it. You want to describe leadership in this way. If you want to make someone angry with you, just make a decision. Is having the courage to make a decision innate or a skill that can be honed and taught? I think you can get better at having the courage to make a decision with practice. You asked me about Stacey Abrams and some alumni who have gone from Archer to do great things and what do they have in common? And this is a word that we used to use quite a lot here, not so much lately, because I think it's gotten overused, but there has to be a certain amount of badassery in you to be a leader. And I'm strong. I'm a strong person. And I think you have to have an inner strength in order to make inevitably the hard decisions that a leader always is going to end up having to make. Whenever you make a decision, someone will be unhappy with you. That's just a fact. I find a lot of times with women, one of the hardest things for women is to think that maybe someone doesn't like them or doesn't approve of them. You've got to get over that. (laughs) Being a leader isn't about whether or not you're liked. It's about you know, fulfilling the mission of whatever it is you're leading and also being true to your values. Like I had a very hard situation at the school several years ago that was very intense, but, you know, we could have gone one or two routes as a school. We could have capitulated to the demands or we could have upheld our values as a school. And we chose to uphold our values and it wasn't easy. 
if I can always walk away from a situation knowing that I did what I believe to be the right thing and not the politically expedient thing, then, then I can feel good about it. And that's something you do get with experience because you have to fall over, you have to fail, you have to make those bum decisions, those bum calls where you slightly got it wrong, maybe because emotion, you know, I've been there myself, I do it and I still do it. You know, I'm still learning running this business, doing what I do. I'm still learning with those things, but you've just got to have the courage to go, no, I did it for the right reasons. And I always also live by what's the worst that could happen, right? Go, look, when you're making decisions, what's the worst that could happen? It's like being brave when I decided to set up this business 15 years ago. And now we're, you know, we work with, you know, 200 of the world's leading schools. We were in 37 countries building some incredible things. But that moment when I decided I had a very comfortable job, could have stayed there for a long time, there was no risk, but it was kind of like, what's the worst that could happen? I lose a little bit of money, I go and get a job. And that's the story I tell my kids because I want them to go, just be brave. As long as your health is fine and you're strong in yourself, honestly, nothing else matters. Yeah, I mean, that word brave, that's it. I mean, we tell the girls all the time, be brave, not perfect. And I think one of the hardest things about being a girl is they're socialized to be perfect. There's an epidemic of overachievement among girls. So we tell them all the time, like the beautiful thing that boys learn is how to do the least amount of work to get the best result. And that's an awesome skill. So we need to teach our girls to learn that too. You know, how do you do as well as you possibly can do efficiently? And the other thing that goes along with that, and and especially being the leader of a school, is modeling, you know, when you apologize, like if you get something wrong, if you think about something, reflect. And then you change your mind about like modeling that you can change your mind. You can say you're sorry. You can disagree with a prior position. Like that is what the world is lacking. You can evolve. America's in is very divisive right now. There's lots of hate. There's lots of confusion. Obviously, one of your core values, Archer, is just around empathy, you know, integrity and community. Obviously, that could be quite quaint by comparison to what's actually out there in the real world. How do you communicate the value of finding common ground amidst all of this chaos of 24-hour news or angry social media feeds? And is finding common ground even possible in 2021? It's so interesting that you asked me that question because I think our schools and our independent schools are not explicitly teaching civil discourse and the concept of what there's the Center for Greater Good, the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. And they have a whole curriculum on what's called bridging which is not about persuading someone else to agree with you or getting them necessarily to even empathize with you. It's just how do you have a conversation and hear another person and just come to the table? And I think we have not done a good enough job teaching diverse viewpoints, civil discourse, open inquiry, and we've got to have the courage to do that right now. What do you want your legacy to look like at Archer? I've been here for 12 years. The school is 25. What attracted me to the school was the culture. You know, culture is the hardest thing to change in an organization. So I was like, well, this place is happy and it's creative (laughs) and it has a like a pioneering spirit. And I, I love that. I think we've done a very good job looking at what programs needed to be developed, but also just the experiential learning that we've put in place. Our journalism program is incredible. It's sort of those experiential things. We have a very robust outdoor ed program where our girls all go on three week-long backpacking trips in the wilderness to learn leadership, you know, how to team with people in a really authentic way. So 
I think my legacy will be that I help the school grow into itself and really fully live its mission to empower young women. That's what I hope. And, you know, I will have built some buildings by the time I'm done too. And that's important because that is about making the institution permanent. Like we're a young woman now. We're not a little girl's school anymore. You know, the schools where you're from have hundreds of years of heritage. So we're only 25 years old. But if you were to come here, you'd think we were around for a much longer time. And I think it's just establishing Archer, like really running our roots deep into the ground because it's been fertilized that tree and we've watered it and it's just really producing the fruit now. And it's been beautiful to watch. I'm really proud of the school. Yeah, well, your, your spark and energy and your passion for Archer and girls' education, it really, really comes through. It just leads me to say thanks ever so much, Elizabeth, for taking the time. Thank you. It was a real gift to just be able to sit and talk about it. I so appreciate it. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.